Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 5 through to verse 18. You may recall that uh, the writer is writing to a group of people who were mainly of Jewish descent and background, and they were having it hard. Uh, some were had stopped coming to church, and some were thinking of packing in Christianity. And the writer is writing to them to encourage them that there's none greater than Jesus Christ. So why would you give up on him? This is God's word. Verse 5 of chapter 2. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. Putting everything under under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus He was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again he says, Here I am, and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it was not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a faithful and a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. May God add his blessing to the public reading from his own word. First was going to be a priestly Messiah, and the other was going to be a kingly Messiah. But both of these messiahs were going to be subordinate to Michael the archangel. And if you look at verse 5, it says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. You see, the Jews, along with this Qumran community who talked about the, the messiahs being subordinate to the messiahs, they believed that angels would rule the world at the end of time. 
That world to come is really just another phrase for the last days or the kingdom of God. The last days, you know, is from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. And at the end, this new era has already begun in the preaching of the gospel. But it's going to reach its climax when Jesus comes back again. And what the Jews believed was, at that point, the angels would rule. And, and so the writer comes back to it again and he wants to show them that Jesus is superior to the angels. And perhaps in their mind was this unspoken objection. Okay, they'll say, we, expect, we accept that Jesus as God's son was far superior to uh, the angels. But didn't this Jesus become a man? And so Psalm 8 tells us man was made lower than the angels. And don't we believe that this Jesus was humiliated as a man? How then can you say that Jesus is still superior to the angels? You see the objection? Psalm says, Psalm 8 says that man was made a little lower than the angels. How then can Jesus, who was a man, still be superior to to the angels and so this passage in chapter 2 what the writer is wanting to do is say yes he was a man he was truly a man but even as a man and a man who suffered the agony of a cruel death on the cross even with that he is still far superior to the angels and in these verses I've divided them up into five sections there are five truths to show that Jesus is superior to the angels. First one is in verse 6 to 9. says, there's a quotation from uh, Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour. You put everything under his feet. And this is a quotation from Psalm 8. Where God had stated his original intention. Was that man would rule. And have dominion. That was God's intention. It was never God's intention that angels would rule and have dominion. Man was made in the image of God. Verse 6. Clearly God displayed his favour towards man. Verse 6. Uh, then verse 7 tells us that man being made a little lower than the angels. Then crowned with glory and honour. Put everything under his feet. Nothing was left outside man's sovereignty. Apart from God himself of course. As 1 Corinthians 15 uh, underlines. Really, verse 8, everything put under his feet, uh, that's really just what Genesis 1 and verse 27, 28 and 29 is saying. Man was made to have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all the beasts. That was God's original intention. But then sin entered, chapter 3 of Genesis. And as a result of sin, uh, his dominion was twisted. He despised his maker. He abused his privileges. And as a result, the intention of God was stalled. But God's intention was never abandoned. And in verse 9, there's the beginning of the restoration of God's intention. Look, it says, verse 9, but we see Jesus. That's the first time his human name is used. It stresses that he was a man. He came into the world. How did he come? We know the Christmas story, don't we? He was born of a virgin uh, into a manger in Bethlehem, the backwood of a place called Bethlehem. 
That's the first step to God restoring paradise. But read on and there's a second step. He suffered and it says in verse 9, he tasted death for everyone. And that tasted death phrase suggests the hard and painful death he fully experienced as a human on behalf of his people. He went through the agonies of death for his people, for everyone. Everyone, of course, in the context is the sons of glory, is the redeemed, not everyone in the world. Uh, otherwise, we'd be universalists and believe that everyone would be saved. But it's all types of people, Jews and Gentiles, every type of people who are redeemed and are his, would be his people. And the third step is, he's now crowned with glory and honour. So Jesus left the realms of glory. He came down to the world in, in a manger. He tasted death. He's now risen. He's crowned with glory and honour. And through that, God has restored man's destiny as the ruler of the universe. Paul states, states the same thing in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The intention of God from the beginning was that man would rule the world. And that is achieved and will be achieved in the man Christ Jesus, who tasted and suffered death for his people. And that means that if we are united to him, we also have a glorious future as the rulers of the universe. And you imagine these people to whom the writer is writing. They were feeling unworthy. They were feeling ins insignificant. And now the writer is saying to them, look, you have a glorious future. Because you're united to Jesus, you're going to be rulers of the universe in the future. You're not insignificant. You're very important to God. And so are we if we're the people of God. We have a grand and glorious future in the kingdom of God as co-rulers of the universe with the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> the second thing to notice here is that Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. Look at verse 10. It says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. See that word author there? It's common, or the, the word that's translated as author in the, in the NIV. I'm not sure what you're using, what version you're using. <clears throat> but in the NIV it's translated as author. It's a common Greek Old Testament word, which can mean the head of a clan, it can mean a hero, it can mean an originator of a course. And the key idea of the word is that someone has gone ahead of the others, like an advance party idea. When I was in the boys' brigade, we went to camp and there was an advance party that went ahead to prepare the camp for the rest coming behind. Think of the SAS hacking their way through a jungle in order to, to, to cut out a path for the battalion to follow behind. Think of a mountain climber who goes ahead of the others chipping away footholds, inserting pittance, and extending the rope to their partners. 
Think of Jesus, he's going ahead to prepare a way to get us back to heaven. That's the idea. He, he, he's the one who came, became like us as, a, as men and women. He endured the bitter death in order to open up the way back to God for us. He's the leader. He's the pioneer. He's the author. He's the one that has gone ahead and opened up the way back to heaven. And notice it says it was fitting. It was appropriate that God would allow the author of salvation, the pioneer of our salvation, to become perfect through suffering. What? Was he not already perfect as the Son of God? How can he be made perfect through suffering? This is referring to the completion of the process so that he would be fully qualified to be the pioneer of our salvation. You see, he had to experience what manhood was like, being a human was like. He also had to become sin for us, as we'll see at the end of our sermon this morning. It was fitting that Jesus would go through the awful darkness of Calvary in order that he might become the pioneer of our salvation. It was God's way. It was fitting. In order to bring many sons to glory. There's a certainty there that there's going to be sons and daughters in glory. In the destiny. So what this verse is saying is that Jesus has hacked his way through life. Became a man. Tasted death. Was resurrected. And through that the path was opened up. In order to get us to heaven. He had to suffer. There was no other way. And that's one of the things which makes Christianity. As it is. We are an in, a politically incorrect religion. It's not politically correct to say there's only one way to heaven. According to the world it's. All religions lead to God. But what does our Bible tell us? It tells us that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus, God sent Jesus to be the pioneer, to hack his way through, to bring us to glory. Only one way. There's no other salvation apart from in Jesus Christ. And even though it makes us unpopular, we must retain that belief that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Third thing in the passage, verses 11 to 13, Jesus is the proud head of God's family. Verse 11, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children God has given me. Key to these verses is the phrase of the same family at the end of verse 11. What it literally means is out of one or all of one. And what he's saying is the sanctifier, that's Jesus and those who are being sanctified, that's his people, come from the same stock 
And because we come from the same stock, Jesus became a man just like us. Because we're of the same stock, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He delights in the family of God. He rejoices that he has a people for himself. And he quotes three passages, one from Psalm 22 and the other two from Isaiah chapter 8. And both passages have persecution or suffering at the background or trouble. Psalm 22, the first 21 verses speak about the crucifixion. It starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the verses go through the crucifixion and the awful experience that Jesus had to endure. Verse 22 Resurrection is over and Jesus is resurrected and he says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. In the first Isaiah passage, the background is darkness of sin and the rejection of Isaiah's word. But Isaiah still trusted God. So with Jesus, people rejected him, but he continued to trust in God. The third passage in Isaiah, imagine Isaiah standing with his arms around his two children, his two boys. Two boys with big long names, with about 20 uh, uh, alphabet letters. Uh, And he's standing with his arms around the two boys. They were living messages to the people. And he's saying, here I am. And the children God has given me. God has been faithful to his word He's given me these two sons. Jesus, he has suffered and died. But there was the promise that he would have sons. So he's now standing amongst his people as they worship. What the Bible tells us is that Jesus is amongst us here today. Two or three are gathered together. There I am in the midst. Can you imagine... Jesus with us today here. And he's saying to the Father, here I am, and the children you have given me. I died, he says, to purchase you for myself. And now I have received you, and you're mine, and I'm pleased with you. And I'm happy with you. And I'm happy you're mine. So That's not how I would think of me, and maybe you as well. I tend to think in terms of my sin and maybe Jesus is not happy with me. My failure. But he stands amongst his people and he says to the Father, here I am and the children you've given me. He's purchased us and we're his. That should cause us to rejoice, shouldn't it? And God no longer looks upon us and sees us as sinners but he sees us as his redeemed people. Fourth thing in the passage, verses 14 to 16, Jesus is the conqueror of man's greatest fear. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death, for surely it was not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. death is a universal thing. A hundred percent of people who are born 
have died or will die unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. None of us, nobody can escape the clutches of death. Why? Because all of us have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. So death is inevitable. It will happen to all of us. It has happened to everyone in the past. And of course, death has been a subject that people don't want to talk about now because of the fear of it. Everyone fears it. Some might protest and say, well, I don't fear it. But sometimes when it comes to their deathbed, their confession is somewhat different. Death haunts every man. The unbelievers in the first century were terror-stricken when they considered its shattering prospect. The most that the Romans could hope for was that a good man might live on in the minds of those that retain, that, that, that cherished their memory. But the fact is, the way we're living in the first century, the 21st century, we all have a fear of death. Verse 15 says, Our lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Why is it? What are the things that make us fear death? Well, pain. Certainly that was true in the first century, probably more than it is now because we have advances in medical science, but still you can experience pain as you go through the valley of the shadow of death. Then there's the separation from loved ones, and obviously that is a real <coughs> fear, uh, and, and that's, that, that's obvious, isn't it? We would miss our loved ones. Then there's the unknown. What's going to happen? No one has come back to tell us what's going to happen. And then there's the fear of the non-being. In the words of Bertram Russell, brief and powerless is man's life. On his and all his race the slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark. And finally there's the fear of everlasting punishment. These are all reasons why all of us are held in the grip and the fear of death. But what the writer of the Hebrews is telling us is that by his death, Jesus' death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. You see, the reason for death is sin and the devil. And Jesus has dealt with sin when he died on the cross. And so the sting of death has been drawn he died, but he came back to life again. And so he's able to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. What a tremendous message. What light in the darkness and the gloom all around the first century, indeed the 21st century. Jesus has conquered death. And therefore... We need not fear death. Of course there will be naturally fear of pain. Of course there will naturally be fear of separation from your loved ones. But the other three reasons I outlined as to why people fear death have now been taken away for the Christian. The unknown. Well we know absent from the body and present with the Lord. That's what the Bible tells us. We don't need to fear about the unknown. There's a heaven. In my father's house are many mansions. There's the fear of non-being. No, no, there's not when you're a Christian because you know 
that God has a purpose for us in the future, that we're going to be even more human than we are down on earth because we're going to be perfect human beings without sin. So there's no fear of non-being. And finally, the fear of everlasting punishment. No, no, there's no fear for the believer, for anyone who's in Christ. He's a new creature and he will never be separated from the love of God. And nothing can separate him. And it's everlasting life, not everlasting punishment. The reasons for fearing death have been taken away from us. Because Jesus, he died. They came back to life. The final thing in the passage is verses 17 and 18. Jesus is the priest who meets our needs. Yes, we need a priest. It says in verse 17 and 18, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a fearful, sorry, a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. Again, notice there's a stress on his humanity. He had to be made like his brothers in every way. He experiences the same emotions of joy, of anger, of sorrow that we experience. It's not that he seemed to be human. He was fully human. He suffered pain and anguish. He had real flesh and blood like us. And in these verses what the writer is saying is because he is really human... He's perfectly fitted to be a priest for us. What's a priest do? priest is the perfect mediator between God and man. He represents faithfully what God is like. He shows us mercy. Mercy is really compassion in action. You remember the man who fell among thieves, beaten up, and the people walked on the other side of the road and passed him by, but the good Samaritan came along, got his hands dirty, helped him. That's what Jesus is. He's the one who shows compassion. He, he, he shows us mercy. And he faithfully represents God. He's the perfect mediator between God and man. But secondly, he's the perfect propitiator. You ever heard of that word before? It's not a word we use down the street. You'll not go down to somebody tomorrow and say, do you ever hear about a propitiator? It's a word that's out of use now. And when the writers of the, the translators of the NIV were trying to think of what the original Hebrew word was saying, they wanted to use language that the ordinary man on the street would understand. And so they put uh, uh, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. <coughs> and that's a good effort, but... I, don't, I think it's weak, uh, and I, I don't think it's complete. You see, liberal scholars talk about removing the stain of sin, if we have to be forgiven, if we want to be forgiven. But friends, salvation is more than the removing of the stain of sin. You see, there's a holy God. There's a God who cannot look on sin. There's a God who is offended by our sin. There's a God who is angry with our sin. There's a God the Bible talks about is full of wrath because of sin. 
So forgiveness of our sins has to deal with two things. Forgiveness of the sins has to do with appeasing the wrath of God and also removing our stain. And the word in the original here in the, in the Hebrew, in the Greek, sorry, is propitiation. And if you look at the, if you have an NIV at the bottom, there's a little footnote and it says, uh, and that he might turn aside God's wrath, taking away sin. And that's what this word propitiation means. It means averting God's wrath from me, taking it away from me, and then forgiving my sins. Friends, that's what Jesus did when he was on the cross. He bore the wrath of God. He paid the price for sin that I might go free. Jesus is the perfect propitiator. He moved the wrath of God away from me and he's forgiven my sin. Learn this word. There are big words in the Christian faith that we can't get around too easily. We can't explain it too easily. It's a word like justification, like sanctification. These are words we have to just learn. Propitiation is one of these great words because in this word is my salvation and yours. When Jesus died on the cross, he averted the wrath from me that was justly coming to me. Jesus averted it from me. Forgave my sin. What a perfect saviour. And then our time is gone. So just notice verse 18. It says he's the perfect helper. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And we know what it's like to be tempted. And Jesus is there to help us along the journey. We do need a priest. Each of us need a priest. But there's only one who is satisfactorily qualified. His name is Jesus. He's the all-sufficient one. Let me ask you the question, what do you need to do to have your sins forgiven? Nothing. We have nothing to do. Jesus Christ on the cross, he took God's wrath, he bore the wrath of God and he took the punishment for my sin and your sin. We don't need to add to that. It's trusting this perfect priest we need nothing else. He is our perfect saviour. And when you trust him and you're on the journey towards heaven, you remember I said that the pioneer, he hacked the way through life and opened up the door to heaven. As we journey behind him, he's with us in the person of his Holy Spirit to help us as we journey along. The original recipients, they were going to, they were going to go back to Judaism. They were going to leave the saviour. Why would they? He's a perfect saviour. He's the all-sufficient one. You've doubts about it? You're wondering sometimes, should you go back to your old way of life? Why would you? Why would you leave such a perfect
perfect Saviour who died to save you and who will be with you each step of the journey. As verse, three, verse 1 of chapter 3 goes on to say, fix your thoughts on Jesus. As chapter 12 and verse 1 says, fix, verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's all you need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for what he did when he came into this world, leaving the glories of heaven aside, coming down to be our Saviour. Thank you that on the cross he bore the wrath of God. He took the punishment that we would go free. Help us, O God, to understand that and to realise that we don't need to do anything. Simply trust him. Lord, enable us to do that. Enable us to trust him as we journey towards heaven. Lead us and bless us, we pray. And if we haven't yet trusted this Saviour, give us the grace to see that he's the all-sufficient one for all of our needs. He's the one that can deal with all our difficulties that sin bring to us. May we see him as our sin bearer. And may we see him as the only one that can save us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.